Scripture will come from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Good evening. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So you can read along with us. Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to read Jesus' words. Matthew 5, 27 through 32. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. You know what I wish? I wish we didn't have to talk about this tonight. I wish that we haven't decided to preach through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. <clears throat> but we did. And here we are. Who wants to preach on adultery and lust and divorce and hell? How do you teach the high standards of Jesus and yet with grace and love and redemption? Maybe we should just sing another song or two and go home. <clears throat> but we can't do that with a good conscience. The Apostle Paul told the elders of the church in Ephesus that he was glad that he preached to them the whole counsel of God. And we want to be a church that does just that to communicate all of God's word to people, to preach in season and out of season, not just what itching ears want to hear. And when you think about it, while it would be an easy passage to overlook or skip over, the subject of marriage and sexual purity is so important, and we really do need this lesson. We really do need to know what Jesus is teaching here and not just skip over it because it might make us uncomfortable or create some tension. If our lesson tonight will prevent one affair, one divorce, one broken heart, one addiction, it'll be worth it all. And that's what we want to do, is just teach the truth. But more importantly, if it'll give one child a secure, loving environment to grow up in, and even more so, one soul saved for eternity, God will be praised. So again, let's look at what Jesus said here. Jesus began repeating the Old Testament prohibition, do not commit adultery. This was a positive reason, uh, there was a positive reason for that negative command. The sexual intimacy that he's talking about is so powerful, and we know that the Bible teaches this, that it's to be expressed in marriage only. Think about it like this, a car is a powerful machine. And it's an awesome responsibility to get to drive a car. An uncontrolled car in an intersection or a marketplace can kill a whole bunch of people. So the government puts some parameters 
on driving. You have to be 16 years of age. You have to pass the test. You can't drive under the influence of drugs or alcohol. You have to stay within the speed limits and, and obey all the traffic rules. There are all kinds of restrictions. And you could ask, why? Does the government not want us to have fun or enjoy driving or not get to our destination? Not at all. Instead, the restrictions are there for the benefit of everyone. The driver as well as all of society to keep everything wonderful. It's a wonderful but powerful privilege. The same is true with sex. God created it. It's a powerful gift from God. It seals the covenant relationship of marriage, and it continually renews that commitment that often produces children who need that secure environment to grow up in, what they call home. It expresses mutual love in a way like nothing else. God who designed us wants this powerful gift to be experienced in the best way, and that's his way in the relationship of marriage. And for our personal benefit and for the benefit of everyone else in society, he limits it to just that, to, to the marriage relationship. Now, outside those parameters, while it may create some excitement and, and be enjoyment at, at, at the beginning or, or while it's going on, but in the end it wounds and it kills, it, it hurts. That's why it's so important that marriage be regarded and really understood. It's a divine institution. This is not man-made. This is why we don't get to make the rules. It's God's idea. It was God who first created the man and woman. It was God who performed that first coming together, that first marriage ceremony. It was God who said in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. I think one of the primary ways that you are to be distinctive as a Christian, to live in this upside-down kingdom, is the way you honor God's boundaries. And so Jesus, in this opening chapter of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he mentions don't commit adultery, that you respect the sexual intimacy as a powerful gift from God and to be enjoyed in marriage only. I think the Christian recognizes there's no such thing, as one author says, casual sex any more than there can be a casual pilot. Think about that. You want a pilot that's serious, on task, knows what he's doing. It's so important. In the Old Testament, when Potiphar's wife said to Joseph, come to bed with me, it'd be so easy for her. And I'm sure in her mind, she's thinking, you know, it's Egypt. Everybody does it. My husband will never know. It's okay. But Joseph was living by a different standard. He said, I can't do this thing and sin against my God. He was different. He lived a life of integrity. And since God's people are commanded not to commit adultery, we are wise to open our eyes and be alert to the times or the seasons where we might be particularly vulnerable. The Bible says we're to be sober and alert because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And we know that he seems to have a, 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 an awareness of our soft spot. I've read that you're more vulnerable to commit adultery at, at different times. And I put this on your outline. Number one, there's a lack of intimacy in your marriage. You're more vulnerable for this when there's a lack of intimacy in your marriage. Now, that can be physical intimacy, but it also can be in the relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4 and 5 says that godly couples should, should be intimate and often. And the only reason not to is for prayer. 
And the whole idea there is not to give Satan a foothold. But number two, you're more vulnerable to adultery when you experience grief or depression. When you're emotionally drained, you're vulnerable at that time. And you're, you're suspect to uh, someone who comes to help you and to be there and to comfort you to make you feel better. So be alert to that. Number three, another period of vulnerability, vulnerability, vulnerability occurs when there's a long period of separation. I think about um, those with military duty, that they're separated, or, or maybe some other kind of job responsibility that causes you to be away for long periods of time. The temptations are there, and I think they increase because you're alone. And again, you're back to number one. You're lacking that intimacy in your marriage, and you lack accountability. Number four, when you spend a lot of time alone with a person of the opposite sex. I think all of us need to look at this. I think you're more at risk. If you're working together on a project, it can even be at church. When a person, two people of the opposite sex, they're together a lot, it's a breeding ground for strong temptation. It's not saying it's wrong, but the temptation can very much be there. I read about a woman who has an understanding with her husband that she always has to approve of his secretary. She has what she calls a 50-50 principle. The secretary has to be over 50 years of age and 50 pounds overweight. She's a wise woman. Number four, you're more vulnerable when you're successful. If you're accomplished, maybe something significant, you may come to think you deserve something better. It's no surprise why so many CEOs have trophy wives or mistresses. It kind of goes with the territory. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But then number five, you're also more susceptible to adultery when you're too close to another couple. Maybe you've seen this happen before. Many affairs begin when two couples do things together too much. They're together all the time. And at some point, Satan is there and they step over the line. Sometimes the other spouses don't even see it. And they're shocked when the affair is disclosed. So be cautious about doing everything with the same couple all the time. If you want to be loyal to Jesus Christ, be alert to the enemy's method of operation, and you stand firm. Jesus came not to destroy the law, he says, but to fulfill it. And he repeated the seventh command, do not commit adultery. But Jesus went a step further, and this is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. He didn't say just don't commit adultery. He goes to the core of the problem, the heart. Look there in Matthew 5, 27, 28 again. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Bible calls the, the soul of our being, our innermost thoughts, the heart. And the Bible speaks of a pure heart, a contrite heart, a, a deceitful heart, a proud heart, a broken heart. The Bible says that we are to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, to praise Him with all of our hearts, to speak the truth from the heart. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But elsewhere, Jesus said, Mark 7, verse 21 and 23, notice what He says here, from, for from within... Out of men's hearts come, and look at the list here. Not just evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, murder, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. 
All these actions he's talking about, they start on the inside, the innermost thought of our life. So the way to assure a lasting, loving marriage is to guard your heart, to maintain pure thoughts. Don't give Satan a foothold at all. Let's say you're eating a snack one evening at the kitchen table, and you're just enjoying what you're eating, and then you notice a drip on the table, and then another drip, and a third drip, and you look up, and at the, at the ceiling, you see this moist spot. What do you do? Do you grab a towel? No. You run upstairs because you know your kids are taking the bath. They're getting ready for bed, and they let the tub overflow. And so you turn the water off, and you pull the plug, and you lecture the kids. And then you clean up the mess, including you go down. You go to the source of the problem. To stay there at the kitchen table and, and mop up the drips is, is not going to help anything because that's not where the problem is. And sometimes when we talk about this whole situation, we talk about the, the symptoms. Jesus goes to the source. He emphasized the importance of the heart, the motive. You've heard, don't commit adultery. He says, let's correct the source. Don't even look at a woman lustfully. Don't commit adultery in the heart. See, I don't know of any scriptural teaching, any Bible passage that is more needed than this. Both men and women struggle with this. And it's not just pornography that's on our computers. It's our society. The Bible calls it evil imaginations. And lust is an awful affliction. It ensnares otherwise very good people. And, and again, no one is immune from this. Everywhere you turn, even clothing edge, you could say, well, I'm just going to do away with everything. But you can't do away with everything because it's everywhere. Look at this for, an, uh, for a, a definition. Lust is looking at a person for the purpose of deliberately stimulating desire. It's looking at a person for the purpose of deliberately stimulating desire. It's not just appreciating someone's beauty. Some Christians take this extreme and say, well, that's wrong. You, you shouldn't even do that. You shouldn't talk about that. But I think there's a difference between appreciating beauty and, and lusting after someone. I think we instinctively admire attractive people. And we notice this. Whether we verbalize it or not, we do. Look, look, look at the screen. I've got a picture of three actresses. Maybe you recognize them. One is very attractive, one is average, and one is rather homely. Let me ask the men. Uh, raise your hand if you think Julia Roberts is the best looking of the three. Some of you are reluctant because you're sitting next to your wives, aren't you? Uh, yeah. You know, we've heard beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I'm not so sure that's true. I think that we have this innate sense, a God-given instinct that, that for what's beautiful. Now, it's true in every culture. Women have the same instincts, okay? Let's be fair. i got a picture of three men. Look, look at the screen. Go to the next one. <laughs> hang on, hang on, bear with me. One is handsome, one is average, and one's homely. I'm not going to ask you which one's homely because Bo is new and we don't want to hurt his feelings. But you know, don't you? Seriously, as we mature, our, our, we should be able to see the inner beauty that God sees. Jesus is teaching, and don't miss this. Sometimes we jump straight to the adultery. And, and let's kind of back up here. Jesus is teaching the first battleground is the heart. So guard your hearts. Solomon said, Proverbs 3, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's not wrong 
to notice what's beautiful. Even if it's in a man, even if it's in a woman. The Bible speaks of Rachel and Sarah as being very attractive. It talks about Absalom and, and, and Joseph as being handsome and well-built. The, the Bible talks like that. So obviously this is true, and it's okay to acknowledge that. But again, lust is looking at another person for the purpose of stimulating desire. John Maxwell defines lust as any thought that if you actually carried it out, it would be sin. John Stott points out to the women, it's one thing to make yourself attractive. It's another thing to make yourself deliberately seductive. You know, the Bible warns to those who give drink to the drunkard is they're going to be held accountable for that. I think in the same way, those who intentionally stimulate lust by the way they present themselves, they're going to have to answer for that as well. But to me, it's interesting that Jesus spoke these words to a culture where women wore loose clothing that covered themselves from their neck to their toes. And yet he still made this statement. It's every man's battle, even when women don't dress provocatively. I can see three primary reasons why Jesus was so adamant in talking about and condemning lust. The first, it destroys natural desire. Some will argue and say, well, you know, pornography, that just brings some romance to the, to the marriage. But before long, the reality is that lust becomes an end in itself, and, and you lose interest in that marital love. In Proverbs 5, it talks very specifically about the husband enjoying his wife. And then in chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all of his past. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. But secondly, lust is wrong because it's addictive. Just as surely as one can become addicted to gambling or alcohol, the same is true for pornography or fantasies. In the Bible, in Ephesians 4.19, it describes them as having lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Doesn't that describe it? See, what would you say to a young person, or really anyone who came up to you and said, I tried cocaine the other night, and I enjoyed it. What would you say to them? Well, whatever you would say to that young person, you should say to yourself about pornography. Remember, it's dangerously addictive. But then third, and Jesus is point blank here, he warns that lust can condemn you to hell. He just says it. Look at verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know, our beloved interstates are always in a state of repair and expansion. Uh, it's just kind of part of life. And there's no shortage of warning signs telling us when it's about to happen and, and then to slow down. At one construction site, there were two signs trying to motivate the drivers to, to slow their speed. One was positive and the other one was negative. The negative one just simply said double fines. You've seen those before. The other one was positive. It was written in like a child's handwriting, and it says, slow down, my daddy works here. One was a plea, the other was a threat. I think they're both good, and they can both work. But which one do you think 
would be more effective in slowing down the drivers. I think the threat, that penalty of a double fine. Think about Jesus. He used both positive and negative motivations to persuade us to do the right thing. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't obey me, you'll be cast into hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Or here in our text, it would be better for you to live your life with one eye or one arm than to enter into hell. So here in the text, obviously Jesus doesn't mean literally to gouge your eye out because you'd have another eye and you could still lust, right? So that's not his point. I think what he's saying here is you take whatever action necessary to terminate lust, even if it sounds extreme, even if it is extreme. Maybe for others, they don't have to take the same step. And that's where we get into trouble. Like, if I have to do it, you have to do it, or everybody has to do it. This is a personal thing. Drop the magazine subscription. You move the computer to the den or the kitchen where everybody can see it. Or better yet, you put a filter on the computer. We've talked about this from this pulpit many times. We've got some technology help. There's a copy of them out here at the Information Center. They're on our website. Whatever you've got to do to help, cancel the movie channels. Throw your television out if you have to. When you check into a hotel, you cancel the, uh, the adult movie channels that are there in your room. Maybe for you, you don't go to that type of restaurant anymore. Or maybe for you, you change jobs. It may be extreme. And others may not understand. But the reason you go to those extreme measures to avoid lust is it can drag you into hell. That's what Jesus is saying here. You are at war for your soul. Satan is going to hell, and he wants to take you with him, and he's going to do everything he can. And if he can get you addicted, if he can get you fantasizing, if he can get you doing any of this to pollute your mind, there's no room for God, and your soul is lost. And he wins the war. And just because you're a Christian, you're baptized into Christ, it doesn't give you a license. Well, I'm protected now, or it's good. Don't flirt with this kind of sin. In fact, listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and of which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. You know, sometimes with addictions like this, we think, you know, but once I get started, I just can't stop. I mean, I turn around and it's been hours. And addiction is that way. I think we understand that. But the idea that I can't stop, I would argue and say, that's not true. I think you can stop. Let's say you're home alone and you're watching something X-rated and you hear a car pull in the driveway and you look out the window and it's your mother-in-law. You think you could stop? I bet you could. See, it's all about who you envision coming through that door. Or really take it a step further. It's if you envision Jesus living with you, living in you while you're doing this. The psalmist asked in Psalm 119, verse 9 and 11, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, the final two verses in this section of Matthew 5, they kind of add an additional restriction. Look at the text, verse 31 and 32. 
It has been said, if anyone divorces his wife, must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It'd be so easy to dismiss this teaching because divorce is so prevalent in our society. But Jesus spoke these words to a time and place where divorce was very prevalent, maybe even more so. All they had to do was sign the certificate. It was easy. The woman at the well had already been married five times. Obviously, it wasn't that hard. But Jesus is teaching his followers then and now to think and act differently from the world, not to get a divorce. I wish that was the message that we would take home from this whole section. Do not get a divorce. He says the only exception you've made has been unfaithful. But even if there's been unfaithfulness, the idea is to repent and to forgive, to renew the commitment the way God forgives, the way he renews his relationship with us. See, it's no accident that God describes his church as the bride and Jesus as the groom. Even in the Old Testament, he would talk about Israel sometimes when they would leave as being adulterers and adulteresses. See, here's the point. He never, ever, ever gives up on you. Think about that. He never, ever gives up on you. That is who God is. And that's what it's like to live in this upside-down kingdom. And he says, if you're going to be my child, if you're going to be a Christian, this is the standard. You don't go there. Do not divorce. See, I don't think we ought to interpret Jesus as saying, if your mate has had an affair, you get rid of him. I don't think that's what he's saying here. If you know the heart of God, if you've read your Bible at all, you know that at the very heart of God, it's all about reconciliation. That is who he is. I think Jesus was saying if there's continual unfaithfulness, if there's no repentance, if it can't be reconciled, divorce is your last resort. Now, non-Christians are not going to accept this. They're going to laugh at this and say, you've got to be kidding. And even for some Christians... For those who are weak, they're not going to accept it either because it's rather strict. But if you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you have to listen to his words. And this is what he says to accept it. So here is the point. You are to treat marriage as a sacred covenant. It's a sacred covenant. And with all that being said, I think we have to acknowledge this is a thorny issue and, and there's so many difficult questions, and sincere Christians disagree on so many answers, and, and I don't have time to go into every single nuance, of what about this situation, and what about that, because if I did, it'd be way too this way for some, and this way for the others. But the concern I have is for people who look to Scripture for the answer they want. They've already got in their mind what they want, so they read the Bible and look for the answer. Either that, or they look for a way to judge someone or maybe justify their own actions. So there's another passage worth noting. I don't think I even put it on the screen, but it's Malachi 2.16. You know it. I hate divorce, says the Lord. That's not that far from Matthew chapter 5 when you look at it in your Bible. There's no getting around that God doesn't want divorce, period. I appreciate our elders who are committed to helping our families stay strong. 
know, it was about a year and a half ago, we started our family ministry with teaching and, and retreats and, and counseling. And our elders spend time with couples in distress with some serious marriage problems. So let me say to the rest of us who are not elders, when you hear idle talk about someone's marriage, it is too easy to make a rash judgment. So don't do that, to call one party guilty and the other innocent. When a marriage is in trouble, if you've been together any length of time, there's usually guilt on everyone's part. That's just part of the, the human condition. But unless you've been sitting knee to knee with that couple, like our elders do from time to time, and you hear their gut-wrenching story, you and I don't know the whole story. So don't listen to the talk, and don't repeat the talk. Your elders are not detectives. They're not lie detectors. And they will tell you it's rarely, if ever, an open and closed case with no doubts or misgivings. If divorce has been in your family, you know it is nauseating. It is one of the most horrible things. But what your shepherds understand is what we're talking about is not just a marriage. It's children's futures who are at stake, but even more so souls who are at stake. Do our elders always get everything right? Of course not. They're human, but they sincerely try to follow the teachings of Jesus, and I think we should do the same. The woman at the well had been divorced five times, but Jesus treated her with dignity and respect. He forgave her and welcomed her into his upside-down kingdom. And so to me, the message there is if you violated God's will for your marriage and you can't go back and unscramble the eggs, there is still redemption Christ can forgive you and give you a fresh start, and you receive his forgiveness. That doesn't mean the big D goes away, but you can be just as forgiven as anybody. So what concerns me is not those who've been divorced and have sought God's forgiveness, but it's those who claim to be Christians and they think they can exploit God's grace. You've heard it. I know God says don't divorce, but he wants me to be happy. I'm at peace, and I think he'll forgive me. I'm so frustrated with this attitude. I don't know if it's from Ann Landers, but she'll often say, have you heard the line? You need to ask yourself, are you better off with him or without him? Have you heard that? That is not from our Lord. God doesn't look at us and our sin and think, mm, am I better off with you or without you? God never, ever, ever gives up on us. He doesn't treat us that way. And he's saying, if you get married, you don't treat your spouse that way. Remember? The church is the bride. Jesus is the groom. The parallel is there. It is so disturbing to see so many divorces within the body of Christ. You know, we provide free premarital counseling. We clearly teach that marriage is permanent. It's a sacred covenant. We provide free counseling and even pay for specialized intervention for couples who are in distress. Yet no congregation is immune to this plague. I think one of the reasons Jesus said to divorce is not an option, because if you think it's an option, it'll be in the back of your minds. There's a big difference between a person who says, well, my spouse and I are having trouble. If we don't work it out, I'm going to divorce. And the person who says, my spouse and I are having trouble, serious trouble. But I'm going to be living with this person for the rest of my life, so we better work it out, or my life is going to be miserable. 
I think one of the reasons Jesus said don't divorce is that he hates to see the people whom he loves go through such misery. I can't think of a more descriptive term than just miserably. See, divorce may seem like the best option on this side of it. I mean, things are so bad, you think, you know, it's got to be better, but in the long run, so many people are hurt so much for so long. I've been in full-time ministry for 27 years, and I've talked to too many couples who've gone through divorce, but here's what I've noticed. They almost always will say, it was so much more painful than I thought. I had no idea how much it would hurt my parents and my children and my friends and how ongoing it would be. It's always with you. Please tell people to stick it out, try, fight for it. And sometimes we will look at a couple that's been married 20, 30, maybe 40 years and think, boy, they married the right person. And they've, they've had it good. You know, they've not had any troubles. Look, look at them. I wish they had a marriage like theirs. But if you ask them, they'll tell you, we went through some rough, rough spots and some very rough spots. And maybe they'll, they'll even admit that there were times where I didn't even like my spouse. But we love each other. We stuck it out. We have a relationship with our children and our grandchildren and with our God, and it was worth it all. Tell them when they're going through that tough spot, don't give up. You fight for your marriage. I beg you to take God seriously. You're in a spiritual battle for your eternal soul and even those who are around you. This line is not original with me, and you've heard it before, and you'll hear it again. The Lord doesn't call you to be happy. He calls you to be obedient. Remember that. The Lord doesn't call you to be happy. He calls you to be obedient. So stick it out. In the end, you'll be blessed, and you'll be grateful that you did. Remember that story a couple of years ago about the hiker in Utah? He became trapped by this 1,000-pound boulder on his hand. He couldn't move it. He was stuck. He quickly ran out of water. After five days, he put a tourniquet on his arm. He deliberately broke the bone in his forearm. Then he pulled out a pocket knife. You remember the story? And amputated his arm. Repelled down with one arm, one hand left, and hiked out to the rescuers who were looking for him. It was gruesome. Aaron Ralston's his name. How could a man do that? That was the question. How could a man do that? He was interviewed by David Letterman. He explained it this way. He said he realized he would not survive unless he took drastic action. Isn't that what Jesus said? Ah, then you pluck it out. Does your hand cut it off? If a man can do that to save his life for a few years, you can take drastic measures to save your soul for eternity. So Satan has you trapped with the weight of sin bearing you down. There is forgiveness and there is an escape. It may not be a physical surgery that's needed, but maybe a mental one. Maybe it's a spiritual one. Maybe it's a matter of the heart. Look at the screen, Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. With all that we've said, look at these words again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In a moment, we're going to sing the invitation song. And I know people are reluctant to respond publicly after a lesson like this. People will think, well, if I go forward, I think I've had an affair or I'm addicted to lust. Yes, they will. But that's the darkness in their own heart. But we're still going to sing a song to encourage you. But it may be for you, it may have nothing to do with lust, may have nothing to do with adultery. But maybe it's not even public. Before we leave, grab an elder by the arm or a minister or wait till you get home privately and give a call. If you're in trouble, if you're hurting, we want to help. Maybe there's resources within our own church. Maybe there's somebody else. If your soul's at stake, if your marriage is at stake, we want to be there for you. Let's stand and sing this song to encourage you.